Uh, if you would like, you can go ahead and start making your way to Romans 13. That's where we're going to find ourselves this morning. If you're a regular uh, attender here in the fellowship, you know that we're working our way through a, a study of the book of John. We're between chapters uh, uh, 5 and 6. Therefore, uh, with that break, it seemed like a natural spot to take a little uh, side uh, tangent study. We're doing a little mini-series here uh, between those two chapters, trying to think of the, some of the issues that we're currently uh, dealing with and mainly thinking about the issue of uh, the role of government and uh, the biblical understanding of the role of government and the Christian's response to it. And again, uh, I think it goes without saying, but we're all mindful of the fact that we're living in a culture where it's seemingly the kingdom of darkness is advancing uh, rather rapidly. Uh, the culture that has, because of its rejection of the word of God, this is why we are where we are at. Because of the rejection of the word of God, the culture has lost its ability on any level to have any kind of rational thinking. We live in a time where the depraved mind has completely taken over. The mind that does not work properly. Therefore, a complete denial of objective reality and utter irrationality rules the day. Now, our modern world that has rejected God, the God of the Bible, and rejected God's word has, in its stead, uh, set up a series of so-called little g-gods that they worship. And one of those is called science. And the foundation of this modern little g-god of Science of the culture, the foundation of that wisdom, tells us that nobody times nothing times times equals everything. That's the foundational thinking that undergirds their thinking, and they would demand us to have that same kind of thinking. There is no God. There's no creator. Everything that we see in the world is the product of uh, uh, accident times chance times time. That all the wonderful complexity that we see in this world... All of the order is there because of some cosmic explosion that happened billions and billions of years ago, and somehow out of this cosmic chaos came order, purpose, and function. And if we would dare to state otherwise or believe otherwise, then we are the ones who are irrational, and we are the ones who are fools to actually believe the nonsense that there is a God in heaven, a creator who man is going to have to stand before one day and give an account for his life. Now, this modern G God, again called science, has also come up with a wonderful discovery. Uh, very uh, recently, there's no such thing as biology. Modern science has informed us in its wisdom that gender is no longer a physical reality, but it's a psychological order. Gender no longer has anything to do with objective reality uh, concerning one's anatomy. Therefore, it has to do with how you feel about who you think you might be or who you might perceive yourselves to be. Therefore, there's no such thing as just male and female, but a multitude of possible genders depending on how you feel about yourself that day. It's also the same modern G, uh, little G God called science that calls living human beings in the mother's womb who are not wanted accidents or products of conception or biological waste that can be disposed of at any time up to and now even after birth if the mother chooses. It's this modern God of science that denies the reality of humanity of the child in the womb that advocates, promotes uh, the murder of somewhere between 800,000 to perhaps a million infants in this country each year alone, let alone the other countless countries around the world. And it is the followers of this modern God science that when the COVID-19 virus broke out in the world uh, for the first time in history, they called for the quarantining of healthy people rather than the infirmed and the immunologically challenged from a virus that has, by their own admission, an overall recovery rate of somewhere between 97% and 99.75% amongst the different age groups. Modern science also mislabeled this whole event as a pandemic because the truth is the word pandemic is derived from two Greek words. The first one, pan, means all, and demos means people, meaning literally affects all the people alike. It means that there's a universal infectability among all age groups, and there's a certain percent of excess deaths over and above normal annual averages, which none are true with the COVID-19 situation. Modern science teaching, treating COVID-19 deaths as though they were somehow more tragic than any other death. And all deaths are tragic, we understand that. But have you noticed there's absolutely no longer a flu season? 
tremendous, right? In the COVID-19 year, we've cured, we've cured the, fu- the flu because nothing is ever diagnosed as flu. And as far as infectability amongst all age groups being the same uh, with a pandemic by definition, in reality, one uh, report I just read this last week said those between the ages of 20 and 40, between the ages of 20 and 40, were likely to succumb from the virus than from playing football. How many of you play football? Well, then I guess you're in a pretty good category, right? You're safe. We want you to be safe. Between the ages of 15 and 24, falling downstairs had a higher mortality rate than COVID-19. For youngsters under 15, the age of 15, the chances of getting hit by lightning were greater than death by COVID-19. And regardless, or regarding the chances of a healthy woman under the age of 40, they suffered about the same odds of dying from a plane crash than from the virus. But it was the same modern God science that promoted fear and drove fear and drove the shutting down of America and the bankrupting of American businesses and putting uh, out of work an estimated 40 million Americans. It's estimated that by some sources that up to 65% of American businesses have been shut down in this last year will never recover. When the virus came, edicts were going right and left, executive orders that came from governing authorities to shut down the world as we knew it. Schools were closed. And a year down the, ro- uh, down the road, there are still many schools in this country that have not opened. Although report after report continually shows that school-aged children, for the most part, do not get the disease, nor do they transmit it. Businesses were closed, again, many to never open again. Families were separated from loved ones, and many families were separated from loved ones who were dying and had to therefore die alone. And some of you know that for a fact. People were told they couldn't meet together. They couldn't congregate anywhere, unless it was a marijuana dispensary. They couldn't congregate anywhere, right? They couldn't even go to church. So the whole COVID-19 shutdown brought us to, uh, brought to us by the gurus of modern science has led to a number of innumerable secondary issues, and you've heard this before, such as premature deaths resulting from people not getting the necessary health care they need because they're not going out, rises in suicide rates, drug overdoses, increased addictions, development of chronic health conditions because, again, people aren't taking care of themselves. And untold heartache and depression and psychological problems. And on top of that, the loss of family income, family breakdowns, etc., and so forth. And completely aside from the financial devastation and personal harm, the so-called scientific approach to COVID is still causing many people problems throughout this country. Because the lockdowns continue in some parts of the country. And all of that with very little to no evidence empirically to suggest the lockdowns were or are effective in mitigating the spread of the virus. In fact, some of the states that are wide open, their um, uh, case rate is much lower than those who are still locked down. I don't know if you saw this last week. I think it was in The Federalist. A little article came out that said two weeks after the Neanderthal Abbott, who's the governor of the state of Texas, that's what he was called by the person in the White House, that if he gets rid of the mask mandate, he's going to bring the whole state into devastation. About the article in the Federalist says that the, the, the rates of COVID infection in the state have plummeted, dropped. Dr. Encouragement said that it was going to be the same kind of thing, that it was going to be absolutely devastation, and the things have dropped, the rates. The, the modern gurus of science don't have a whole lot of empirical evidence. They just keep telling us what to do. They just keep pushing misinformation and fear-mongering, and they just continue to emphasize caseloads and, de- and, and death. De- caseloads and deaths. And, and they continue to try to preach uh, so people would be fearful. Where, again, many people have been fearful to the point they're not taking care of themselves, and they're willing to give up civil liberties they think in their best interest. So the little g-god, this modern science, uh, has been rather busy lately. He's been fundamentally altering the society in which we live in and stripping people again of their civil liberties. Again, if the pandemic is ever officially declared over, many people are going to be left utterly reliant uh, upon government instead of free, prosperous, and independent, which is how God would mean for men to live everywhere. Until the next virus or the next variant of the virus comes and the whole process repeats itself. And just on a side note, 
I'm not trying to be unkind, but I am wanting you to think this morning. Just on a side note, why would we believe anything our so-called governmental scientific health care officers tell us to be truthful considering the COVID situation when they are more than willing to promote, support, and advocate for the murder of unborn children? If they're willing to break the sixth commandment, which is, you shall not murder, why would they not only break the ninth commandment, is you shall not bear false witness or you shall not lie? And if the purpose, the whole purpose of the COVID shutdown was to save lives, then why do they continue to promote and practice the murder of unborn children? It's an example of the depraved mind on full display. Another little g-god in our modern culture is uh, academia. Academia has given us that wonderful uh, uh, thing called postmodernism. And postmodernism is the self-refuting uh, assertion that there's no absolutes. Right? That's what postmodernism brings us. There's no absolutes. Now, it's a statement that can't possibly be true because that's an absolute statement, right? To say that there are no absolutes, right? So it's just idiocy at the beginning. If there are no absolutes, that means nothing is true. And if nothing is true, then you're left to create your own reality. What is true for you is true for you. And it's actually been, and I'm sure that you've seen these headlines, it's actually being promoted and encouraged and argued in the academic world that 2 plus 2 is 5. And and to believe otherwise would reek of white supremacy, patriarchy, and racism. Again, the fallen mind on display. Some of you people in this room are watching me on the uh, live stream, I know, are engineers. So if you're an engineer sitting down at your desk trying to design an airplane and you come up with 2 plus 2 plus 2 plus 2 is 5, I'm not getting on your airplane. And guess what? You're not flying on your airplane, right? Because you know the idiocy of that idea. The insanity rolls on. I don't know if you saw it this week, but I kind of pay attention to these things. I saw a headline this week that came out of uh, a Great Britain, out of a public health brochure that encouraged, and I'm not misspeaking, that encouraged men who identify as women to make sure they get tested for cervical cancer because we want to make sure you're taking care of your health, right? Which this is another absurd example of depravity on, on display, the depraved mind in action. It's also the fruit of postmodernism that is brought to the world, the promotion and the continual disintegration of the family, the promotion of so-called transgenderism and gender dysphoria and the critical race theory, which openly promotes and, uh, racism and division and anger between people, uh, along with the destruction of the nuclear family. It's the little g-god of science and academia together who've teamed up to bring us the false idea that men can control the weather, so-called global warming. Unless you happen to be living in an area of the country that is absolutely freezing, and then for you, if it's unusually cold outside, it's known as climate change, right? And if you're a climate change denier, then you're the enemy of humanity because there's only a few years left to save the planet, so they tell us. And on top of all that, we're seeing an increasingly hostile uh, attitude towards those who are uh, followers of Christ. Uh, an increasing hostility towards Christ, according to the, the God of the Bible, and again, those who desire to follow him and glorify him, rather than honoring, glorifying, and lifting up the little false G's, gods of the culture. Therefore, we're in a battle. We're in a real ideological battle, a spiritual battle. That's what we're a part of. Listen, and now there is no place for neutrality. You cannot hide from this issue. You can't run. You're not getting off the planet, right? Go with uh, the fellow who wants to send a, 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 a rocket to Mars. Have a good time, right? You're not getting away from the issue. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, it is never my design for you to get away from the issue. The Lord Jesus Christ has made it very clear in his word that you're either with him or you're against him. You're either for him or you are against him. That is that easy. And believers in Christ are, fa- are called to be people who are set apart. Set apart, set apart from sin, set apart from the world, and set apart from all these false ideologies and false cultural gods. But when we refuse to play the game, when we refuse to follow the world and its false deities, we can expect pushback. We can expect pushback. We can expect that the world's going to continue to pressure us to conform. In fact, the Apostle Paul says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be 
persecuted, will be persecuted. And obviously all these false little G gods, you can probably name others, they're nothing more than the lies of the kingdom of darkness promoted by the ultimate liar himself, Satan. As we saw last week in our study, we took a little quick look over in the book of Daniel. We saw that when Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were pressured by Nebuchadnezzar to bow down to worship the false god or the false image that he had set up in that plane there, he re- they refused. They refused. Why? Because they had determined in advance in their heart they would only honor God and they would only worship him and worship him only. They made this choice before they ever got in a situation. And I would encourage you to do that likewise. Make the choice only to honor only to honor God, only to worship God in Christ. Now, in the day in which we're living, we're not going to probably more than likely be faced with the possibility of being forced to bow down before a 90-foot golden uh, idol. But we are going to be continually pressured by the world around us and now by the governing authorities to bow down under the threat of punishment and to again worship and obey these false gods these false deities of our day these false ideologies that are promoted by the culture again a culture that hates both god and christ and a culture that is now attempting to force their ideologies upon us by an ever-increasing fashion even by using the government to do so and again i'm going to tell you this we only bow to one we only bow to one that being the god and father of our lord jesus christ amen we only bow to one. Steal your heart. Get ready. Act like men. Get ready for conflict. If you were looking for the church that was teaching you how to have a good time and how to enjoy yourself, you probably walked into the wrong room this morning. This is a call to war, a call to battle, a call to stand up for truth. We bow to one. We live in a world in a time that we need a tremendous amount of wisdom and a tremendous amount of discernment on how to navigate the world that we're now part of. And I think God has promised to give us that, right? He's promised to give that through prayer and through his word. But we need to think. And we need to think deeply. We need to think rightly. We need to think biblically. We need to think about what is the Christian's role in this world? What is our purpose in this world? And with an ever-increasing encroachment of the government into the matters of the church, uh, again, recently promoted by the so-called pandemic, we need to think deeply and biblically and rightly of the government's role in the world. That's why we've turned our attention to Romans 13. So if you haven't made your way there, make your way there now, because I want to just read this uh, portion here just in a a moment. Uh, But before I read, I want to go back and remind you there was two introductory statements, two caveats I put on top of the entire discussion uh, the last two times. Number one statement was this, that God has given us in this church the responsibility. God has given to us as the church left here in the world to represent him, right? We are ambassadors for Christ. Why are we in the world? We're ambassadors for Christ. Why did we not get zapped into heaven? Because God left a witness. We are that witness. We are ambassadors for Christ. We represent Christ in the world. That's why we're here. We've been left after our salvation, to represent Christ, to speak to men and women around us about God's love for them, about God's desire to save men, to speak to them about the truth of the consequences of their sin, and that there's one way that they can get reconciled, and that being through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and through him alone. To declare the gospel, to declare God's gracious offer, that there's a way to escape the wrath that is coming, that the rebellious will indeed face. And I said this, to get caught up into any kind of temporal issue, any kind of temporal activity or cause, is to miss the importance, the eternal importance of why we're here. And it's to completely misuse our life. Right? We've we got to keep our priorities straight. We can't get sucked up into all of the stuff. We've got to get to the issue. What's the issue? We represent Christ. Point number two, I said as a caveat over the entire discussion, was the purpose of the church in the world is to be the pillar and support of the truth. Right, the pillar and the support of the truth, 1 Timothy 3.15. We are called to hold high the truth. We are called to lift up the truth. We are called to speak the truth. Because, again, men and women who are trapped in Satan's kingdom of lies, what they need desperately more than anything else is they need to hear the truth. And we are the truth-tellers. They need to hear the truth. We have been left to represent Christ, and we are the truth-tellers. All right, point number one, point number two. I'm going to give you a third one for today over the, what we're going to do this morning. 
Here's the third one. The heading over our discussion. Here it is, Christ over all. Christ over all. Christ above all earthly powers. The fact that Jesus Christ is the Lord. The fact that there is no authority higher, no higher power than him. And part of the call that he has given to us to represent him, to go and make disciples of the nations, is to declare that very message to the nations, Christ over all. Therefore, every, every man, every man must, by command, obey Christ. Every man must, by command, obey Christ. Men need to understand that truth. I don't care whether they believe it or not, they need to understand that truth. We need to hold them accountable then. We need to understand the gospel, and the, the gospel that saves sinners by the convicting people of sin, declares that there is an opportunity for them to escape the coming wrath only through the finished work of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone, but you've got to know who he is. And part of the evangel, part of the, the gospel, part of fulfilling the Great Commission is telling the world who he is. Matthew twenty eight eighteen. Jesus came up and spoke to them. That would be the 11 disciples saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Stop right there. All authority. It means he's the sovereign one. So you've got to start out with a recognition of who he is. He's the sovereign one. He's the one who's above all earthly powers. He's the one who has all authority on heaven and all authority on earth belongs to him. Christ is above all earthly powers. Christ overall. It's not just a statement, it's a reality. It's a reality that all men one day, all men one day will learn by experience, either willingly or unwillingly. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Verse 19, therefore go and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you, and lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Christ overall. There is one and only one who has universal dominion, one and only one who has universal power and authority, who must be obeyed, who will be obeyed. That authority wasn't given to him. It wasn't granted to him. It wasn't assumed by him. It belongs to him by divine right because he is the fountain of all things, the fountain of all beings. He's the one who has all original power because he's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, God come in the flesh. Therefore, all power essentially belongs to him. He is the universal authority, both in heaven and earth. He's the one who exercises dominion over both realms. And one day, everyone, 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 not just if you're in the church, no, one day, everyone will deal with him. Everyone will recognize that. And everyone who's exercising authority in this realm here on earth now has a delegated authority that they must realize that that authority comes from him, whom they will stand before one day and give an account for how they have used that delegated authority. Christ over all. Now Romans 13. Verse 1, Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves, For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God for your good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Now this is our third time together discussing this issue. And the other two times we've looked at it primarily from the standpoint of the Christian's responsibility to the governing authorities. And we've read here in the text, Paul tells us that as followers of Christ, we are to be subject. We are to subject ourselves to the governing authorities, right? Because we realize that all authority ultimately comes from God. The word subjection or subject, I told you, means to line up under, to subordinate ourselves, to yield voluntarily to those in authority over us. Again, realizing that all authority comes from God. He is the king of the earth. He is the Lord over everything. He is the ultimate authority. And when we obey authorities that are over us, we are obeying the delegated authority granted to them by God, right? Uh, These earthly rulers. But does that mean that we must absolutely obey everything an earthly ruler tells us or commands us to do? And I told you that the answer to that is no. We certainly cannot obey ungodliness. We certainly cannot obey evil. So submission does not mean blind obedience. 
And there's a difference between obedience, uh, submit, obedience and submission. Obedience deals with performance. You either do it or you don't. But submission deals with the heart, your heart attitude. And there may be times where you or I cannot obey the authority over us, but there should never be a time when our heart attitudes are not one of submission or subjection. I would like to, but I can't. Right? It's a heart attitude. Now, in general, Christians are to submit to human government. And the last time I gave you five reasons why came from the text. I'll just give you the headings and not repeat all the other information. Uh, we should uh, obey governing authority, number one, because government is ordained by God or government is by divine decree. Number two, resistance to human government is rebellion against God. Number three, those who resist human government are going to be punished. Number four, government serves to restrain evil. And number five, government serves to promote good, right? So in general, we should obey governing authorities. We should submit to governing authorities. There's two more in the text, and I don't have time to develop them, but I'll give them to you just so you can look at it. I'll, I'll just mention, they're found in verses 4 and 5. The sixth reason that we as a Christian should submit to human government is because the government has the right to bear the sword. The government has the right to bear the sword. The government has the right to inflict punishment, even capital punishment, uh, upon those who break its laws. Look at verse 4. For it is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. The government bears the sword. Number seven, or the seventh reason why we really should submit to human government is for the sake of our conscience. Verse 5. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. Right? Disrespect to government authorities is wrong. Right? Respect is right. For the sake of consciousness, right? Do, do the right thing. For the sake of your conscience, do the right thing. That's, excuse me, that's the idea. Now, I ask the question, is there ever a time when it's proper or biblically permissible to disobey governing authorities? And I said, yes, there's three, three, three different uh, exception clauses if you want in the Bible. And again, I'm going to make this statement before I go further. And I'm going to say again, Christ is overall. Right? There may be times when we cannot obey uh, the government because we have a primary responsibility to obey Christ. And when that responsibility to Christ leads to the conflict with the governing authorities, we have to graciously, humbly, submissively bear up under the conflict, maintain a submissive posture and an attitude, and then entrust, as it says in 1 Peter 2, entrust ourselves to him who judges righteously. Right? Do the right thing and let God deal with the details. Right? Now, when is it biblically permissible to practice civil uh, disobedience? Number one, I said when government commands what God forbids. When government commands what God forbids, I gave you a couple examples. I gave you the, the, out of the book of Exodus, I gave you the example of the Hebrew midwives. They refused to murder Israelite babies because they knew that murder was wrong, uh, as a, and it was against God's command. Took you to Daniel 3 and showed you Daniel's three friends refusing to bow and worship the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up because they knew idolatry was wrong. Daniel 6, Daniel refused to worship uh, anybody but the true God. He continued to pray, continued to worship, even when the government authorities passed a law that said he couldn't, right? When is it biblically permissible to practice civil disobedience when government commands what God forbids? Number two, when government forbids what God commands. When government forbids what God commands. I gave you the example out of Acts 4, where Peter and John had been arrested and told no longer to preach or teach in the name of, of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to the governing religious authorities, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. We must obey God rather than men. God had commanded them to preach Christ, to teach Christ, and they were faithful to God's command. Because God has put limits on government. God has put limits on governing authority. Again, verse 2 out of Romans 13. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Now, all authority is from God, and resisting authority opposes God. However, is all resistance to governing authorities opposition to the ordinance of God? Right? Is all opposition, all resistance to governing authorities opposition to the ordinance of God? And again, we have to answer that question with an emphatic no. Because when government commands what God forbids, or when government forbids what God commands, government itself is in opposition to the ordinances of God. Right? 
Do all government laws come with the authority of God? Do all governmental laws come with the authority of God? And again, you'd have to answer that question, no. Because they have a delegated authority. Their authority is delegated. Therefore, their laws have to be consistent with the one who gave them that power to rule. Right? They have to be consistent with the law of God, the word of God. If government issues a law or an edict and orders evil, that would be out of line with the ordinance of God because God is not the author of evil. So there are biblical limits. We've got to think this through. There are biblical limits on governmental authorities. And again, we have to think deeply on the subject because for the most part in this country, we've not had to think about this issue for the last 200 years. It's been pretty smooth sailing, right, in, in our culture. It's been a culture that at least had some vestiges of, uh, of Christianity or at least a positive view of biblical Christianity. Not anymore. We've got to think about this. Third category when it would be biblically permissible to disobey governing authorities, when government commands what is not theirs to command. When government commands what is not theirs to command. I told you previously there are three spheres or three realms of authority, right? Three realms of government with their own sphere of authority or jurisdiction that God has set up and they have to be respected. I told you first there's the one in the family. And in the family, the father has the authority, right? And it's limited to his own family, not somebody else's. He has authority in his own family. And then there's the authority in the church, where God has delegated his authority to the elders and the pastors, the shepherds of that particular congregation. And third, there's a delegated authority with the state, civil government. And again, it has been given by God the task to protect the peace and promote the the well-being of the people. And each authority, each realm of its authority has its own lane to stay in, right? Stay in the lane. And when one realm of authority exceeds the bounds of the jurisdiction, it is the duty of the other realms to inform them of them, right? You're driving down the freeway, it's California, you've got six lanes. You would like people to stay in their lane, guarantee you. And they start doing the, the boxcar thing or whatever you at the amusement park back and forth. You're not happy with that. Realms of authority, stay in your lane. Now, specifically in the context that we're addressing here with civil government, when they come in and start issuing edicts, orders in the church to regulate worship, to put forth bans on singing, bans on number of uh, <clears throat> people who can be in attendance, prohibitions against gathering and services, when they do that, listen, they have stepped out of their legitimate God-given boundaries. They're God-given roles of authority, and they need to be corrected on that issue. Because God himself has commanded his people to not forsake assembly. God has commanded his people to worship him, and one of the ways we worship him is we sing. And we happen to like to sing here. Government does not have the right or the authority over the church. And again, that's why we're doing this little mini-series, because... I want us to think on these things and think on these things biblically. Now, to address the issue that we're going to start to look at this morning, we need to go back and ask the fundamental question, what is the biblical purpose of government? What is the biblical person of government? We got it, right? Government has authority, right? It's delegated. It belongs to God. All authority belongs to God. God delegates authority. But what is the fundamental purpose of human government? And to answer that question, put a mark there in your Bible. We're coming back to it. Uh, But turn over to... um, Uh, Turn back to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. This is what is known, and you're familiar with it, it's known as the kingdom mandate. Genesis 1, verse 26. We'll just jump in right there. 126. Genesis 1.26, God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, And God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. Verse 28, God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish and, uh, of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Right? God creates man. God creates man in his own image, in his own likeness. And God gave to man certain inalienable rights. 
certain rights that God has given to men that they cannot be taken away. To begin with, it's God is the one who gave men life. Right? Life is a God-given right. A right given to men by God. And an alienable right. By God until he takes it away. God himself gave man the unique responsibility to exercise dominion over the earth. To rule it. To subdue it. Authority over the earth. The responsibility to rule and to work the earth and to subdue it means they're going to have to work. They're going to have to work. You've got to work to subdue the earth. Genesis uh, 2.15 says, uh, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. So what you have to understand is, biblically, work is not a part of the curse. Chapter 2 comes before chapter 3. The fall happens in chapter 3. This is before the curse. Listen, work is an inalienable right. It is a God-given right. A, a right given to men by God. God commanded the man to be fruitful, to multiply, procreate. He gave him, he gave, God gave man the right to have companionship, the right to have a family, the right to be with your family. Implied in this command to rule and subdue and to, to the earth, to have dominion over it, is the, uh, implied is the right to acquire things, to acquire property, to acquire possessions. These are God-given rights to men. Now, what does man need to uh, protect the rights? These inalienable rights. What does a man need to rule over the earth and exercise dominion, especially in a fallen world? James Coates, in the sermon that he preached, entitled Directing Government to His Duty, right before he was arrested, says it very well, and you should listen to that sermon. He says, what man needs to rule over the earth and exercise dominion in a fallen world, he needs government. He needs government. He needs government in place to protect his God-given and alienable rights, especially in a fallen world. So the biblical purpose of government is to facilitate mankind in the exercising of his dominion over the earth. Government fundamentally exists to make sure that we can fulfill our mission to subdue the earth, to work, to worship, to be fruitful and multiply. So government is a God-ordained institution put in place by him to assure that law and order are there, to protect these God-given rights or this God-given authority. So again, government is vital for man to fulfill his mission, again, especially in a fallen world. And you see that just a few pages over. Flip over to Genesis 9. You see this government fulfilling an important role uh, played out here in relationship to murder. Genesis 9, just one verse. Genesis 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Right? This very verse implies the idea of government. There are rules in place to subdue evil. There is someone or someone's in charge to carry out the punishment for the crime of murder. And again, it implies government. The death penalty is in place for murder, for capital punishment. Or, or is the death penalty is in place, right? Capital punishment, because the death penalty for murder is God's law. It's not whether you think it's right or don't think it's right or you're going to... Pro- no, it's God's law. It's what God says. Did I read that right? Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made him. He made man. Penalty for murder is God's law. Now, the verse is not talking about personal vengeance. It's talking about government. It's talking about human society. It's talking about ruling authorities carrying out the penalty of God for the murder of someone because men have a special place before God, right? created in the image and likeness of God. Genesis 9-6, you know what that is? It's Romans 13-4. Romans 13.4, if you do what is evil, be afraid for governing authorities. Do not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God for an avenger for, that brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. God has given the sword to ruling authorities as an instrument of death, an avenger of God, to bring wrath, God's wrath upon those who practice evil. And again, capital punishment implies government as a minister of God, as a minister of God. James Coates asked this uh, tremendously clarifying question. Speaking uh, in, in the context here of, uh, of uh, Genesis 9-6. Now, fundamentally, what is Genesis 9-6 protecting? 
If government is to institute, exercise, implement the death penalty against someone who commits murder, what does that protect? He says, well, you might be thinking it protects life. Well, it does, but then he says, but certainly not the life of the one who is murdered. The one who is murdered is already dead. So it's not protecting them. But it does provide a law that is to prevent and restrain murder from taking place. So this is not primarily protecting life. What is it protecting? He says this, rights. The right to live. Another human being does not have the right to take the rights of another individual through murder. He says, see, this is really critical. If you believe government has the responsibility to protect life, then you are like buttoning up a shirt with the wrong button. You're going to get the whole thing wrong. Government's responsibility is to protect rights of which life is only one. Government has the responsibility of upholding all of the inalienable rights given to men by God, and the death penalty functions to prevent murder, which in turn protects a person's God-given right to life, at least until God takes it away. That's a tremendous statement. That's helpful. God has ordained government to protect our God-given inalienable rights so that we can accomplish the mission that God has given to us here on this earth to worship him, to work, to exercise dominion over the earth, to subdue it, to enjoy life that he gave to us, to enjoy your family that he gave to you, right, and for you to have an opportunity to provide for them, to make provision for them through work. That's government's God-given biblical purpose, protect our rights, in order that we can accomplish the mission that God has given to us. Government, again, I told you, is a minister of God. It represents him. A deacon of God. They work for him. Government belongs to God. Minister of God, right? And they're to be there for our good, as it says in Romans 13. Listen, Coates says this. He says, government does not grant these rights. Instead, government is obligated by God to recognize these rights. Government does not impart these things. They are already ours by God. Government must recognize them. And when government begins to get in the way of man accomplishing his God-given mission, then it's no longer functioning as God intended. And that's another tremendously helpful statement. Government is a minister of God, a deacon, a servant, called to carry out God's ordained purposes. Governing uh, Governments or governing authorities are not autonomous, meaning they don't just to do whatever they want to do. They're not their own little rulers, universal rulers, right? Governing authorities are going to be held accountable to God. They've been placed in that position, but with a delegated authority by God. Therefore, they're responsible God, uh, to, accountable to him. Now go back to Romans 13. Go back to Romans 13. Look there at verse 3. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. Verse 4. For it is a minister of God for your good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Now, if government acted in its God-ordained role as a minister of good to ensure that your rights, your God-given rights were protected, in general, would you not delight in government? Right? In general, you delight in government. Why? Because it's facilitating your mission. It's allowing you to exercise dominion over the earth, to pursue employment, to make provision for your family, to worship and to serve God. If, you, if they did that, then in, in, on a whole, you'd praise government. If government carried out its God-ordained role to praise good behavior and to avenge evil, <clears throat> we, we wouldn't have a problem as much with government. But look here at verse 4. For it is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid. So the question has to be, who defines good? Who defines evil? Now, obviously, we've seen in the passages we just looked at in the book of Genesis, God himself is the one, right? God is the one who defines what is good. God is the one himself who determines what is evil. And how does he do it? He does it by his word. He does it by his word. He says so in the Ten Commandments. And you see that 
governing principles, the, the, the determination of what is good and evil, especially in the second half of the Ten Commandments. They're in Exodus 20. We won't turn there. But at number six, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Now, again, it's a commandment against the premeditated murder of another human being, but it touches on God's inalienable right of what? Life. God gave life. He, nobody has the authority to take that away except God himself. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. It's a command against having sexual relationship with anybody who's not your spouse, which again touches on the inalienable right of a family. Number eight, you shall not steal. Right? That protects a person's inalienable rights to property, possessions. Commandment number nine, you shall not bear false witness or give false testimony. Right? Lying. It's against God's commandment. It exposes your neighbor to liability and perhaps even death. The tenth commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his manservant, maidservant, his oxen, donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. It's a commandment against desiring anything that anybody else owns because it's coveting that leads to the breaking of the commandments, murder, adultery, theft, and so on. If it's wrong to do something, then most certainly it's wrong to de- desire to do something. So again, what or who desires what is good and what is evil? Again, it's God and God and his law. In fact, you see Paul following that same line of thought in the next verse. Look at Romans uh, uh, 13, verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, verse 9, for this you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if any other commandment, is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, right? God determines what's good and evil, not the government. So what's the biblical role of government? The biblical role of government is to protect our God-given rights so that we can fulfill the purposes for what God created us and, and to promote good and to put down evil. Now I'm going to ask this question that Coates asked, which I thought was a tremendous question. Is it the, is it the government's biblical responsibility to protect us from the virus? Now, a whole lot of people would say, yeah, believing it's government's responsibility to protect life. But if it's government's responsibility to protect life, then why does our government promote and enact laws that take away the life of the unborn? Why does our government promote and enact and put into action laws to protect and advance all kinds of sexual immorality and sexual perversions and deviancy of all kinds that tend to hurt little children and women? Why do they promote the murder of children through abortion under any and all circumstances if they want to protect life? Why does government demand that you and I as taxpayers pay for the murder of children at any time all the way up to and even after the actual moment of birth, Right? Uh, which uh, the Bible would call that infanticide, if the role of government is to protect life. And if the role of government is to protect life, then I would suggest to you they're not doing a very good job of it because, again, we murder some 800,000 to perhaps a million children alone in this year, uh, in this country every year. And we do so under the banner of the so-called right to choose, right? We call it a health care option, quote-unquote, Certainly not giving any consideration for the baby. It's health that's going to end. It's life that's going to end. We're not really considering the, 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 the right of the woman who's in the womb because she's about to be murdered. It's the depravity of man on full display. Is it the government's responsibility to protect us from a virus? And the answer is no. Why? Because we live in a fallen world, and the world's full of viruses. It's part of life in a fallen world. Government's responsibility is to protect our God-given rights. Is it the government's responsibility to protect our life? And the answer again is no. God is the one who gives life. God is the one who takes away life. Government is not sovereign over the extension of our days. God is. But you say, no, 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 you don't understand. This is a pandemic. And the answer to that is no, it's not. It's not. It doesn't even come close to a pandemic. What has government done with all of the lockdown measures on society that supposedly are to protect us from the virus, which it cannot do when, again, it's supposedly trying to protect our lives, which is not its responsibility? What it does when it locks us down, look, it actually infringes upon our inalienable rights, our our liberty that God has given to us, our God-given rights, the right to work, the right to worship, the right to be with your family, 
the right to be with your family when they're dying. Sorry, you can't go see your dying loved one because there's a, uh, a COVID virus and you might give them the COVID. I mean, it, it's depravity on display. It's the insanity of a fallen man. The right to life. I mean, the right to life. And many people, I've said it, and statistics prove it out, many people are dying due to the government lockdown because of fear. They're not going out and getting their checkups. They're not going out and getting their, their cancer treated because they're afraid to go to the hospital and get routine checkups or to go get their cancer treated because they're afraid of dying from COVID. Other people are turning to despair and to suicide, to drugs, overdosing. Children are being forced to stay at home and not go to school, not learning. We're seeing increased rates of uh, adolescent suicide and increased rates of abuse amongst children by those who are taking care of them, supposedly at home. Again, Coates asked the question, if somebody in this country dies from COVID, it's not the responsibility of the fault of government. If somebody dies in this country from the COVID lockdown measures, the government bears culpability, right? Because they're outside of their God-ordained roles, no longer functioning according to their God-ordained purposes. The harm they have caused, they will be responsible for, they will be held accountable for before God. When government steps out of its God-ordained role and does anything except its God-ordained purposes, it's out of its lane. Government shutting down businesses. Government closing houses of worship. Government at the same time keeping abortion clinics and marijuana dispensaries open to quote-unquote save lives. It is out of its God-ordained lane. And you know government, it doesn't just get into your lane. Government gets into every lane. So in California, man, we're back and forth across all of them. Six of them at once. Riding between the lanes. Trying to exercise dominion where it has no right to exercise dominion. So during this whole COVID lockdown situation, the government has stepped in and tried to play the role of God. Because they're the ones that have decided they're going to get determined who suffers. You lose your job, can't provide for your family, sorry, too bad. Everything's shut down. We're shut down because, listen, we're trying to do you good. And we're trying to protect people around you. We're trying to do the good of the people around you. Just sit down, shut up, and take the grovel that we hand you those billions and billions of dollars of COVID relief package, and they're arguing about whether or not you're going to get another measly $1,200 from that government. Sit down and shut up. Listen to this. C.S. Lewis once said this. Of all the tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It would be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep, his cupidity may at some point be satiated, but those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. They may be more likely to go to heaven, yet at the same time likelier to make hell of earth. This very kindness stings with an intolerable insult. To be open, quote, cured, close quote, against one's will and cured of states which we may not regard as a disease is to be put on the level of those who have not yet reached the age of reason or those who never will and to be classified with infants, imbeciles, and domestic animals. Those who come to your rescue to try to help you tell you to sit down and shut up. Like you're not a reasoning, thinking person. We know it's better for you than you do. Now, all that to say is what the government should have done, what it should do now with those places it's not done. Give us all the information that's available on the virus. Let us be adults. Shocking. Let us be adults. Make adult decisions on what we think is reasonable, what we think is best based on our own assessment, how comfortable we are all with taking risks. Because, listen, life comes with risks. Each and every day we take risks. Getting in your car, driving here this morning was a risk. Getting in your car and driving home this afternoon is a risk. We accept risks because we'd rather drive than walk. We're willing to accept that. And the reality is death looms over every person. And what every person needs is a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they need the Lord Jesus Christ because he's the only one who ever defeated death. We don't need to be locked down, treated like children. We need to meet together. God 
created people for interaction. They need to meet together. Churches need to meet together. Churches should be open. If you're attending a church, you're online and watch, you're attending a church that's not open, you need to go to your leaders and say, we need to be open. We need a fellowship. You can't practice the one and others virtually. You can't take the Lord's Supper virtually. You need the interaction of the body of Christ. You need to come together. Open the churches. Open the businesses. Open the schools. Families and friends. I'm going to say something just going to be heretical in the modern day. Families and friends ought to come together, take a meal, and they ought to hug each other. Every time I see that commercial of some little kid taking something to the door to the door of his grandma and running from his grandma, I think that's anathema. We're just trying to save grandma's life. No, you're killing grandma. She'd much rather have a hug than the cookies you got in the bag. Let us be adults. And then hold government accountable to perform its God-ordained roles, protect our God-given and inalienable rights. And if it does not do that, then those who need a government, those who lead government will give an account before God, right? Because they're responsible before God for how they lead. Is it ever a time where it's biblically permissible to disobey governing authorities? Yeah, when government commands what God forbids, when government forbids what God commands, and when government commands what is not theirs to command. Again, God himself has placed limits on government. Government exists to protect our God-given rights, promote what is good, punish what is evil. And when civil government put restrictions, puts restrictions on, on churches' gatherings to a numbers, frequency, manner, style of worship, m- mandating we wear masks and don't sing, they are out of their lane. They have no jurisdiction here. Now our attitude, again, should be humble, gracious, First Peter 2.18, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but to those who are unreasonable. Again, it's a hard attitude. It's not an obey. It's not an obedience issue. God has not granted to civil authorities rule over doctrine and practice and the polity of the church. God has given that authority in his word to the elders, the shepherds, the pastors. And again, with the caveat, as I started this hour, Christ is over all. Right? Christ is the Lord of all, both the church and the state. Christ mediates his rule in the local church through pastors and elders who teach his word, not through civil authorities. Any any government authority that requires churches to limit or suspend their meetings, they have to be respectfully informed they've exceeded their legitimate jurisdiction. Because faithfulness to Christ prohibits us from observing those restrictions. Those who want to uh, uh, um, impose uh, things against our corporate worship. Now again, I said before, we've got to think clearly on this issue. We've got to think carefully biblically, right? Government is intruding more and more into our life, more and more into the authority of the church. We need to develop a clear theology of government. And again, for the last 200 years or so, we've been not able to think about this issue here in this country. If God commands us to worship him and not to forsake the assembly, and if government comes and says we can't meet, or we have to limit the number of people who want to enter into and worship with us, again, they're outside their lane. Now again, I'm going to tell you, don't buy the lie. Do not buy the lie. They're only trying to limit the amount of people who come together so they can save lives. Well, number one, that's not government's responsibility. Number two, if saving lives was that important to them, why do they promote abortion? Why do they protect abortion laws? The whole thing is nothing more than hypocrisy. When you hear government say, we're just trying to help save lives, it's nothing more than hypocrisy. You witness it by the long summer of riots. Right, The massive amounts of unrest and riots in this country, people gather together with no social distancing and no limit on number of people who gathered. And I don't know if you remember this, but I do. There was a point where there was a group, I think it was about 1,200 medical personnel, came together and signed a document that said gathering together to riot was an important mental health necessity that overrode the possible dangers of the COVID outbreak. Do you remember that? I remember that specifically let alone just looking at what we're seeing now, the vast numbers of immigrants that are coming into the country being let through the, in the southern border unchecked and untested for COVID. And even if they do have COVID, they're letting them in. And we've got to start thinking. We've got to start thinking as biblical Christians. And when government commands what is not theirs to command, we have a right or the duty to respectfully decline to obey. Because government is a ministry of God. It belongs to him. It's his idea. Governing authorities have to submit to God's authority. And the church only submits itself in full compliance to the authority of God himself. We bow to one. Now, if government had carte blanche authority, right, unfettered authority, 
And if the Christian must absolutely obey everything they tell us to do, think about this. I listened to some fellows on an iP or a, what do you call it, a podcast last week. I thought it was phenomenal. They said, okay, if, if government, if the, because the, the traditional thinking in the church is we just got to obey. Whatever they say, we just got to obey. Okay, they said this. If government comes and commands women that they must wear yellow shirts on Tuesday and men must do 10 push-ups on Wednesday, and then they add the caveat in order to protect your health and everybody else's health around you, do we have to obey that command? Well, I know. Probably, probably ought to think about it. I mean, they're not actually uh, saying to do something against God's word. And there's no prohibitions against uh, wearing uh, yellow T-shirts for women, and there's probably no prohibition against men doing 10 push-ups. In fact, that might make you a little bit healthier. But the question is, is that government's role? Do they have authority in that realm? Are they exceeding their authority? Are they commanding what is theirs not to command? Now, the guys used that example because they knew it was preposterous. But they put it out there on a table for us to think because they want us to understand that there are gray areas that are coming and are going to keep coming, and we're going to have to think. We're going to have to be able to apply biblical principles to an ever-croaching government and to the overreach that is reaching into a realm that doesn't belong to theirs, a realm that is not theirs to command. So when the government comes and says these things, we've got to think, so what's their, what's their realm? What's their realm? And not only do you have pressure from the government, and I'm sure you face this at some point, how about your well-meaning Christian family or well-meaning Christian friends who come along and say the very same thing? Oh, you guys are mean. You've you got to close the door. You can't have fellowship with each other. And, and you know, we've got to do that to protect people's lives. And, and if you really loved people, then, then you'd keep your doors or your church closed. Now, when you hear that, you've got to stop and ask yourself and evaluate it. Is that true? Is that a true statement? Or is it more loving to open the doors of the church so men and women might have an opportunity to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because, let me ask you this question, is death from COVID the worst thing that could ever happen to somebody in time? Or is dying without Christ the worst thing that could ever happen to somebody in time? We've got to start thinking. Christ is king. We have a responsibility to him first. We're in the world to represent him. We're the truth tellers. And the most loving thing that we can do for our neighbors is tell them the truth. Tell them there's a holy God to whom they're accountable, that unless they repent and place their faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, they're doomed eternally. And as we face an ever-encroaching pressure from the world around us as followers of Christ, we've got to keep reminding ourselves of these truths. Remind ourselves, again, that we're nothing more than strangers and aliens. This world is not our home. We're just passing through I've said it many times. We've got to de-Americanize our Christianity. We've got to start thinking not as American Christians. We've got to start thinking as biblical Christians. And then we've got to ask ourselves the question, when has it ever been safe to be a follower of Christ? Because if I do these things, the government might come against me. Okay, when has it ever been historically safe to be a follower of Christ? When in the history of the church has the, has the, governing, the governing authorities, the secular governing authorities, come around, put their arms around and sung kumbaya and say, well, we're just so glad you're here. Right? You know the answer to those questions. Paul says, whoever desires, desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We don't need the government's permission to worship. We don't need the government's permission to gather, to command. Uh, uh, it's the command of God, right? It's not a privilege granted by the state. We don't need the government's permission to serve our Lord, to serve the fellowship, to serve those in the community who are in need of Christ because we're commanded by our God to do so. And again, while we would like to comply, there may be increasing times when coming that we just simply cannot. We have to stand up what is true, what is just, what is right, stand up for the honor and the glory of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and stand up and perhaps even confront ruling authorities who rule as tyrants and inform them of their biblical responsibilities. I obviously don't have time to go into it, but this, earlier this week, I picked up a, a, a book or an article, and I started reading a little bit on John Knox, because I remembered he had repeated encounters with Mary, Queen of Scots, right? And he went to her and confronted her. She is a Roman Catholic. He confronted her repeatedly on her idolatry of the Mass, and he commanded her that she should obey God and lead the country into righteousness, not further into idolatry. He was bold. And perhaps there needs to be a return to some of that 
holy boldness and exercise that in the day in which we live for the glory of Christ and for the love of our neighbors who are being deceived by Satan and his kingdom of lies. Perhaps the best thing that we could tell some of our authorities is that they need to kiss the sun. S-O-N. They need to kiss the sun. And for the first time in our lives, we're dealing with this issue in the United States. For the first time in our lives, we may have the great privilege also of being called to suffer for the glory of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. To have that great privilege as we stand for truth. We're left as, as bearers of the truth, representatives of God, truth tellers, and Christ is overall. If the secular government doesn't like that and how it plays out, to all due respect, I wish I could obey, but I can't. And I'll just let God work out the details. I mean, why in the world would you want to protect your life and live longer in this place when absent from the body, present with the Lord, right? I mean, I'm not looking to be a martyr. I don't like pain. Pain hurts me. But on the other hand, is there something outside ourselves, something higher than ourselves that we want to live for, that we should be living for? And I would suggest the answer to that is yes. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ overall. Amen? Our Father and our God, thank you so much for just an opportunity to... Uh, share a bit out of your word and to think and boy lord do we need some help thinking again we've not been faced with some of these issues we're being faced with now currently and are sure to be faced with an ever-increasing fashion in the days ahead of us so we, we don't want to be out of line we don't want to be disrespectful we just want to honor you we just want to see you elevated christ lifted up we want to see people come and know the savior because, again, physical death is the lot of all of us. And, again, we have to have a biblical worldview on that, a biblical understanding that death is not the worst thing that can happen to us. The worst thing that can happen is to spend eternity without Christ and not have your sins taken care of. Allow us the freedom, Lord, to continue to proclaim that message from this pulpit. We pray, Lord, you work in hearts and minds that uh, men and women repent and come to know the truth of the Savior. Again, thank you for this morning. In Christ's name, amen.